This is war to extermination. Fight cell by cell through bodies and mind screens of the earth. Souls rotten from the orgasm drug, flesh shuddering from the ovens. Prisoners of the earth, come out. Storm the studio. Burnt metal smell of interplanetary war in the raw noon streets, swept by screaming glass blizzards of enemy flak. Shift lingles, free doorways, cut word lines, photo falling, word falling, breakthrough in gray room. Towers, open fire. Citizen, you are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Guilt, blast, bound, stab, strap, kill. Pilot K9, you are cut off. Back. Return to base immediately. Ride music beam back to base. Stay out of that time flack. All pilots, ride pan pipes back to base. You probably know this already, but I was listening to your one on, um, what's his name? The, the jazz musician. Um, yeah. Your voice was really quiet compared to the music, and it's hard to hear you sometimes. So, you know. Yeah, I... I don't know. I like, I didn't want, was it, was it impossible to hear? I tried to make some music higher, but yeah. I was like, I I was like, I was like moving around outside. Okay. Well, you're (laughs) you're supposed to sit quietly in your room and really pay attention. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's my bad. Yeah. You've got a good beginning. Listen, trial and error. It just depends again on breaking the records over radio. Rock music blares! Door slam! People yell! Children scream! Sirens whine! Trucks crumble and roar! And rock music blares! Blares, blares, blares! Is there any escape from noise? Is there any escape from noise? Is there any escape from noise? You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is your weekly installment of Escape from Noise. I'm joined as is happening more and more often, um, though I can't say exactly why, by the boys, which means of course that we have a special episode of Escape from Noise entitled this week, Escape from Boys. Is there any Escape from Boys? We'll ask that question um, again and again. We've got with us, from the Maryland of England, Greg, say hi, Hello. Greg, hi, and George. Greg. Hey. It, you might be having trouble telling them apart due to their um, lovely British accents. George is the one that's got a bit of a, a bit of the Aussie in him. Um, oh, you think? Well, I mean, we'll leave it to the listeners to find yeah, out. Yeah, we'll see um, how it develops throughout yeah, the episode. Yeah. Um, oh, wait, let me get the... Uh, some what have background. I got in me? 
Greg, you've got you've got oh well, you've got that that strong Swiss accent, don't you, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> um, so this week we are doing something a bit different. I feel like usually this is a music show, music listening, music talking about. You might even call it music criticism, but we're usually pretty nice. This week we're going to be um, delving into a different world, um, the world of literature. We've got, we've each brought um, a short story or two. We're gonna um, be reading them, chatting about them. We'll have a couple breaks for tunes as well. Um, yeah. Um, oh yeah, one thing I haven't, I haven't told Greg and George yet, but we've, we've been moved in our time slot. The listeners already know this because of when, when they'll be listening, but we've been moved even deeper into the night. We're now running 1 a.m. to 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, hey, nice. Yeah, yeah. The so late night show. Absolutely. Even deeper into the land of freaks and weirdos than we were beforehand. So, oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, so does, does anyone want to start with a little little story? Or should I do it? No? We've got, we've got no's all around. <laughs> Um, yeah, as the host, you can, you can as, kick us off. Paul. As the host, I can kick us off. Um, so I'm going to be reading a story by Grace Paley. Um, this story is entitled Conversation with My Father. Um, it's, you know, some might call it a metafictional story, but it's not, it's not quite that. It is a story about telling stories. Um, but yeah. I guess I won't say too much more about it because I've finally found a book and I've got it open in front of me. So um, here we go. A Conversation with My Father by Paul, Grace Paley. Yes, Greg? I think the music stopped. I'll tell you what the, I'll tell you what the problem is also. You know, if we're going to be editing out, what, what I'm going to do... Um, Maybe we shouldn't, you know? Audiences <laughs> like, you know, these little bits where you mess up. Bit of authenticity. George knows what the audience likes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so often been an audience member himself, you know. That's, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, people, so I think people often think that our um, meteoric rise to fame has made us forget what it's like to be a common radio listener, but we really haven't, you know. Um, we're, we're just like you. The music stopped again. Has it, no, 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 wait, wait. <laughs> no, it hasn't. <laughs> um, has it stopped now? I started again. Yeah. Oh, wait. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. <laughs> I'm, glad uh, I'm glad we've been moved. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is definitely <laughs> middle of the night quality. Yeah, but this is, a, this, is, yeah. <laughs> this is our introduction to the people who are insomniac on Wednesday nights instead of Tuesday nights. So, mm-hmm. um, off a bad impression already. All right. Yeah, for those that have waited up until one. This is a bad start. They should probably go to bed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe this story will put you to sleep, though, because I'm finally yeah, ready to um, recite it with, importantly, some lovely ambient music by the stars of the lid in the background. My father is 86 years old and in bed. His heart, that bloody motor, is equally old and will not do certain jobs anymore. It still floods his head with grainy light but it won't let his legs carry the weight of his body around the house. 
Despite my metaphors, this muscle failure is not due to his old heart, he says, but to a potassium shortage. Sitting on one pillow, leaning on three, he offers last minute advice and makes a request. I would like you to write a simple story just once more, he says. The kind Maupassant wrote, or Chekhov. The kind you used to write. Just recognizable people and then write down what happened to them next. I say, yes, why not? That's possible. I want to please him, though I don't remember writing that way. I would like to try to tell such a story if he means the kind that begins, there was a woman, dot, 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 followed, followed by plot, that absolute line between two points which I've always despised. Not for literary reasons, but because it takes all hope away. Everyone, real or invented, deserves the open destiny of life. Finally, I thought of a story that had been happening for a couple years right across the street. I wrote it down, then read it aloud. Ha, I said. How about this? You mean something like this? Once in my time, there was a woman and she had a son. They lived nicely in a small apartment in Manhattan. This boy at about 15 became a junkie, which is not unusual in our neighborhood. In order to maintain her close friendship with him, she became a junkie too. She said it was part of the youth culture with which she felt very much at home. After a while, for a number of reasons, the boy gave it all up and left the city and his mother in disgust. Hopeless and alone, she grieved. We all visit her. Okay, Pa, that's it, I said. An unadorned and miserable tale. But that's not what I mean, my father said. You misunderstood me on purpose. You know there's a lot more to it. You know that. You left everything out. Turgenev wouldn't do that. Chekhov wouldn't do that. There are, in fact, Russian writers you never heard of, you don't have an inkling of, as good as anyone who can write a plain, ordinary story who would not leave out what you have left out. I object not to facts, but to people sitting in trees talking senselessly, voices from who knows where. Forget that, Pa. What have I left out now? In this one. Her looks, for instance. Oh. Quite handsome, I think, yes. Her hair? Dark, with heavy braids, as though she were a girl or a foreigner. What were her parents like? Her stock, that she became such a person. It's, it's interesting, you know. Uh, from out of town, professional people? The first to be divorced in their county? How's that, enough, I asked. With you, it's all a joke, he said. What about the boy's father? Why didn't you mention him? Who was he? Was the boy born out of wedlock? Yes, I said. He was born out of wedlock. For God's sakes, doesn't anyone in your stories get married? Doesn't anyone have the time to run down to City Hall before they jump into bed? No, I said. In real life, yes. But in my stories, no. Why do you answer me like that? Oh, Pa, this is a simple story about a smart woman who came to New York City full of interest, love, trust, excitement, very up-to-date, and about her son, what a hard time she had in the world. Married or not, it's of small consequence. It is of great consequence, he said. Okay, I said. Okay. Okay yourself, he said. But listen, 
I believe you that she's good looking, but I don't think she was so smart. That's true, I said. Actually, that's the trouble with stories. People start out fantastic. You think they're extraordinary, but it turns out as the work goes along, they're just average with a good education. Sometimes the other way around, the person's a kind of dumb innocent, but he outwits you and you can't even think of an ending good enough. What do you do then? He asked. He'd been a doctor for a couple of decades and then an artist for a couple of decades. And he's still interested in details, craft, technique. Well, you just have to let the story lie around till some agreement can be reached between you and the stubborn hero. Aren't you talking silly now? He asked. Start again, he said. It, it ha happens that I'm not going out this evening. Tell the story again, see what you can do this time. Okay, I said, but it's not a five minute job. Second attempt. Once, across the street from us, there was a fine, handsome woman, our neighbor. She had a son whom she loved because she'd known him since birth. In helpless, chubby infancy, and in the wrestling, hugging ages seven to ten, as well as earlier and later. This boy, when he fell into the fist of adolescence, became a junkie. He was not a hopeless one. He was, in fact, hopeful, an ideologue, and successful converter. With his busy brilliance, he wrote persuasive articles for his high school newspaper. Seeking a wider audience, using important connections, he drummed into Lower Manhattan newsstand distribution a periodical called O, Golden Horse. In order to keep him from feeling guilty, because guilt is the stony heart of nine-tenths of all clinically diagnosed cancers in America today, she said, and because she had always believed in giving bad habits room at home where one could keep an eye on them, she too became a junkie. Her kitchen was famous for a while, a center for intellectual addicts who knew what they were doing. A few felt artistic like Coleridge and others were scientific and revolutionary like Leary. Although she was often high herself, certain good mothering reflexes remained and she saw to it that there was lots of orange juice around and honey and milk and vitamin pills. However, she never cooked anything but chili, and that no more than once a week. She explained when we talked to her, seriously, with neighborly concern. It was her part in the youth culture, and she would rather be with the young. It was an honor than with her own generation. One week, while nodding through an Antonioni film, this boy was severely jabbed by the elbow of a stern and proselytizing girl sitting beside him. She offered immediate apricots and nuts for his sugar level, spoke to him sharply, and took him home. She had heard of him and his work, and she herself published, edited, and wrote a competitive journal called Man Does Live by Bread Alone. In the organic heat of her continuous presence, he could not help but become interested once more in his muscles, his arteries, and nerve connections. In fact, he began to love them, treasure them, praised them with funny little songs in Man Does Live, such as, the fingers of my flesh transcend my transcendental soul. The tightness in my shoulders end, my teeth have made me whole. To the mouth of his head, that glory of will and determination, 
He brought hard apples, nuts, wheat germ, and soybean oil. He said to his old friends, from now on, I guess I'll keep my wits about me. I'm going on the Nash. He said he was about to begin a spiritual deep breathing journey. How about you too, mom? He asked kindly. His conversion was so radiant splendid that neighborhood kids his age began to say that he had never been a real addict after all, only a journalist along for the smell of the story. The mother tried several times to give up what had, what had become without her son and his friends a lonely habit. This effort only brought it to supportable levels. The boy and his girl took their electronic mimeograph and moved to the bushy edge of another burrow. They were very strict. They said that they would not see her again until she'd been off drugs for 60 days. At home alone in the evening, weeping, the mother read and reread the seven issues of Old Golden Horse. They seemed to her as truthful as ever. We often cross the street to visit and console. But if we mention any of our children who were at college or in the hospital or dropouts at home, she would cry out, my baby, my baby, and burst into terrible, face-scarring, time-consuming tears. The end. First, my father was silent. Then he said, number one, you have a nice sense of humor. Number two, I see you can't tell a plain story, so don't waste time. Then he said sadly, number three, I suppose that means she was alone. She was left like that, his mother, alone. Probably sick? I said, yes. Poor woman, poor girl to be born in a time of fools, to live among fools. The end, the end. You were right to put that down, the end. I didn't want to argue, but I had to say, well, it is not necessarily the end, Pa. Yes, he said. What a tragedy, the end of a person. No, Pa, I begged him. It doesn't have to be. She's only about 40. She could be a hundred different things in this world as time goes on. A teacher or a social worker, an ex-junkie. Sometimes it's better than having a master's in education. Jokes, he said. As a writer, that's your main trouble. You don't want to recognize it. Tragedy, plain tragedy, historical tragedy, no hope, the end. Oh, Pa, I said, she could change. In your own life, too, you have to look it in the face. He took a couple of nitroglycerin. Turn to five, he said, pointing to the dial on the oxygen tank. He inserted the tubes into his nostrils and breathed deep. He closed his eyes and said, no. I had promised the family to always let him have the last word when arguing, but in this case I had a different responsibility. That woman lives across the street. She's my knowledge and my invention. I'm sorry for her. I'm not going to leave her there in that house crying. Actually, neither would life, which unlike me is no pity. Therefore, he did change. Of course, his son never came home. But right now, she's the receptionist in a storefront community clinic in the East Village. Most of the customers are young people, some old friends. The head doctor has said to her, if we only had three people in this clinic with your experiences. The doctor said that? My father took out the oxygen tubes of his nostrils and said, jokes, jokes again. No, Pa, it could really happen that way. It's a funny world nowadays. No, he said. Truth first, she will slide back. A person must have character, 
She does not. No, Pa, I said. That's it. She's got a job. Forget it. She's in the storefront working. How long will it be? He asked. Tragedy. You too. When will you look it in the face? That was the story, A Conversation with My Father by Grace Paley. You're just tuning in, this is WCBN FM Ann Arbor. The show is Escape from Noise. We're doing a little short fiction night tonight. What'd you guys think of that, of that story? Beautiful. Yeah, the music got a bit loud there at the end. The music yeah. was perfect for that as well. Yeah, yeah. The stars are literally yeah. great. Yeah. Have you read that before? Is it your first time hearing it? I read it earlier today or yesterday, but it's the first time I've heard it read out loud. I think yeah. she's got a real good sense for, I, I didn't realize it reading it silently to myself, but most of that story is dialogue, I guess. She's got a real sense for like, I don't know, rhythm, I guess, and prose. For sure. I, I like that as well, like going back and forth between the father and, and the story itself. There's like quite a few layers to it. Yeah, he was so determined that it was all a tragedy. I guess it's like the context of him being on his deathbed that, you know, he's so determined to be like, oh, that's how it is. But it's also like she created that story that was very sad. Like, you know, the second try, like it came to an end and like, it was like depressing. I was like, oh God, like she's created this story. And then it was too late, you know, he'd already held on to this tragedy that he'd like sought out in it. And she yeah. wanted to turn back, but it's like, no, like your story had power in the first place. You can't like, you can't change it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was, yeah, I thought that was good. Yeah. Wait, I think, I think we need to take a little break right now. Um, and then we'll come back in a second. Have you experienced a loss or reduction in income due to COVID-19? Do you now owe rent for months you couldn't pay? Although the statewide eviction moratorium just ended, don't panic. The Ann Arbor Tenants Union is here to help. Whether it's providing advice on issues with landlords and property managers, educating tenants about their rights, or organizing tenants and their neighbors, the Tenants Union is here to help all renters in Washtenaw County. Tenants together are stronger. Want to know how the Tenants Union can help you? Email us at aatenantunion at gmail.com, find us on Facebook at Ann Arbor Tenants Union, or leave a voicemail at 440 482 one nine six eight. That's four four zero four eight two one nine six eight. You happy now? Yeah, that makes this whole thing worth it. Yeah, it's only worth it if we record it. Um, back from the break. This is WCBN FM. We were just speaking about the story, a conversation with my father by Grace Paley, and I think. Um, George, you were speaking about the the sense of tragedy that um, is in the story, but then she tries to sort of scoop out at some points as well. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It was just that moment of like, she'd written the end of it in like the end, you know, like, mm-hmm. and you were kind of, I was like, oh, wow, okay. Like, that's quite a strong, sad ending. 
and then the old guy you know picked up on it he sort of seized it and and then she was a bit like yeah afraid of what she'd created and like what she'd then re i guess reproduced or reconfirmed within his mind yeah this negative outlook on the world whoa <laughs> church organs yeah the level's good yeah okay. yeah george yeah. i think you should say that bit again because we didn't have any music for the first bit <laughs> well that's fine we don't need the music for it do we? okay fine. yeah this is this is by far the uh, least professional show I've ever done. I think. No, I mean, we can make it professional in the edits, right? Surely. Um. Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Um. It's just a lot more work for me, I guess, if I want to make it sound <laughs> nice. But, um, yeah. Um, I think that's like that's kind of like the central like problem of the story. Also, is how to tell the story. You know, like how to deal with like the tragedy that's at the center of it. That's kind of, um, it gets set up this kind of conflict between, I guess the narrator who we can assume is Grace Paley. She like mentioned some of her own stories that have previously been published and her father and Grace Paley's kind of, she's interested in this tragic story, but she keeps on like putting in jokes. She wants it to like turn out nicely. She even like imagines that this woman um is going to have a nice life in the future and tries to end the story that way where her father who i mean we shouldn't forget is on his deathbed essentially is um in a in a hospital like very ill with forget exactly what is saying no like this is all tragedy like at the bottom of everything is is tragedy um yeah and that's like i don't know that's how the story moves forward like there is the progression of the story within the story but that story doesn't progress very much the real progression the real development is how it should be told i guess and how to deal with that with that sense of tragedy um, who do you believe do you believe grace paley or do you believe the father should we be trying to make some jokes or I'm wondering what the joke is. Is the is the joke what we can read in her story within a story? Because it's kind of, it's a bit funny in the sense that uh, it's just slightly absurd the way this mum has also become a junkie. Right. Or is the is the joke actually something that the father can see, which is a kind of reflection of his daughter in the story is the joke the way that the sub story kind of like is alluding to to her life in a way that we can't see does that make sense um more or less i i I think that the joke is the way that she's telling the story i think that um that's (laughs) it's difficult because we've got the story within a story and then we've got the story so the joke is the way she's telling the story within the story, you know, is she's telling it in a sort of lighthearted, like joking way, I guess. Um, she's taking this, these events, which we are led to believe like actually did occur. Um, and Grace Paley did write a lot of about like her life in New York and her neighbors and the people she knew. So we can assume that this has happened. And 
this the larger story is about her trying to like find a way to shape that to entertain her father while he's on a visit in the hospital and the the joke is just the way that she's telling it she slips in little little pieces of humor like um I think there's that, there's that poem once once the son of the woman um, gets clean he starts um, he starts like he becomes like a organic food kind of like hippie kind of person and starts um, writing he, he writes this poem about how much he loves being like off of drugs and just like in a body which the, in the poem itself is like quite funny I think like yeah. the fingers of my flesh transcend my transcendental soul the tightness in my shoulders and my teeth have made me whole like it's just it's a bit comic and ridiculous um and I think it's there's like smaller turns of phrase there I'm trying to find um some other ones um they're not coming to me right now, but I think it's, yeah, there's like little turns of phrase or like little comic elements that she's peppering into her telling of the story. That's like, that's what the father objects to. Um, yeah. He wants it to be like checkup, you know, he wants this like, just like, like very bare, like dramatic, like, like, you know, tragedy, you know, that's just has no adorn, no like ornamentation whatsoever um. yeah it's 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 funny because i just read a short story by Chekhov. what'd you read i can't remember the name of it i'll find it in a minute but there's a collection of um sort of russian short stories that um george saunders has has put together with his kind of commentary on it george saunders is the sort of like i think he won the man Booker prize last year and he's kind of nice american author at the moment and and he's teaches these these russian short stories and uh he's been teaching them for like 20 years and he's just kind of condensed all of the things that he's learned with his students into this book um that's just come out and the first short story in it is this short story by chekhov and um it's funny to me because in that story it's about a woman who's kind of lonely, uh, sort of hopeless, and... Uh, that doesn't the, narrow it down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, she's lonely and hopeless, right, in this sort of, and it's and it's quite stripped back almost, and it's sort of like what the father might be describing. But then the end, um, she has this kind of, like, epiphany moment where, um, for no kind of re real reason, it seems, just because of the way, you know, that the light seems to be falling that afternoon as she's like riding her cart into town. She, she has this flood of memories from her kind of childhood, from her family, um, from when she was, you know, happier. And she suddenly, like suddenly, we the reader have this sense that even after years of misery and loneliness and isolation, you can like be transformed out of nowhere. Yeah. And so it's funny that, yeah, I, I don't know that Chekhov is as kind of like hopeless as that. So that makes me not on the dad's side. That makes me go, come on, man, you're just a bit, you're a bit of a stony old guy. Yeah, but I mean, he's on his, he's on his deathbed, you know? I think that's like, it's, it's sort of complicated to tie- No excuse it. To, to like tie together all like the threads of the story and like the way that the 
this story within the story connects to these people. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I think one thing that's like really essential to the story and one the reason that I wanted to read it um, and maybe even read it first is that it's it's really a story about trying to figure out like why we tell stories or like maybe not figure it all out, but you know, like deal with that question. Um, it's like, I think pretty unique. Um, I mentioned before that it's metafictional. It's not quite that, you know, it's not as like, I'm breaking the fourth wall, I'm like speaking to you as the reader, but it is a piece of fiction about the creation of fiction and about how fiction relates to the world. Um, and I think, I, I mean, she's telling this story, um, you know, just to sort of like entertain her father, like as a way to like spend some last moments with him um, before, I guess it seems like he's soon going to pass away or she doesn't know if he's gonna pass away soon. Um, and I don't know, I think that like, that shapes the story itself, you know? I think that's like kind of one of the truths at the center of the story is that like, you can't just write down something or you can do that, but it's not as truthful if you just like toss a piece of writing or a piece of art out into the ether like it's always for someone you know like there's always someone on the other end that's interpreting it that's like reading it you know um, yeah but in this story she has this moment where she's been told she admits she's been told that you know she should always let her dad have the last word yeah i can't find the line but then she says something like but i have other responsibilities now and it's yeah. almost as though because she started telling this story she feels a kind of duty to the truth of the story and she's like she, she can't just come up with some kind of like sweet ditty some nice consolation she she has to like tell the truth but i think that's like what paul was saying is that like there's always an audience on the other end of it and within the story like the audience is kind of getting or has the ability to change it and mold it for what they are actually wanting um but like they interpret what it is that they want and the the storyteller doesn't really have i mean they have a, a big influence obviously but like ultimately the audience has a huge or in what they take away from it yeah for sure yeah the dad has the final the final word to him yeah as he takes his last breath and just yeah. fades <laughs> off <laughs> It also makes me think of like parenting in general and that maybe that was a dynamic that existed between their relationship or perhaps uh, Paley's relationship with her own kids is that like you're trying to you know, be current, trying to like connect with your children and get involved with whatever, whatever they're doing. But ultimately like you kind of lose them and they like become their own people. That's maybe yeah. something I thought. Like maybe the, you know, the dad um, was feeling like the funny part of it was like, oh yeah, this kind of sounds familiar. I remember this, you know? Yeah. I when I was like, uh, you know, when you were a child. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. The, the like parent-child relationship of the story within the story and the story itself. Mm. Do you think the dad, he maybe feels like left behind by her in this way? Um, in the way sure. that the, the mother does? Yeah, okay. I mean, I guess he's he's soon going to be left behind by her like when he passes away i don't know um, 
perhaps that's like what you feel as you get older and you're no longer like you know the young generation and you're replaced by another one mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like her, her dad's kind of like given up or is giving up and she's kind of insisting that he doesn't. It's why I feel, I don't know, I feel a bit like sort of just a bit unsettled by the story. Like I don't, I don't feel very consoled by the story. I don't feel like, oh, okay, this is a nice, this is a nice sort of bit of insight into the like, you know, power narrative and, and whatever. Because if I feel confused, like, I don't know who, yeah, I see her trying to console or trying to insist that her dad stops indulging in the like tragedy of his own death and actually yeah. opens up to the possibility of life. Yeah. And then I see her dad who's older and is about to die and doesn't want that fact to be ignored. He's like, stop looking away from my death, you know? which mm -hmm. also seems friggin' reasonable. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But then I feel like all of the like deeper emotion is sort of like hidden behind this storytelling. It's almost like the, the story within a story is a way to like avoid talking about like the more important things. Is maybe, maybe fiction doesn't come out very good in this story um, at the end of it. Seems like she's she's maybe saying we need to be reading less books and maybe um, getting out into the world more. <laughs> You're projecting. You're projecting. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying, at least. <laughs> okay, well, not too soon. You've got to finish this show. Yeah. Um, what do you think? How much, how much time do we got? I should have started a timer, huh? Um, should we move on to another um, work of fiction? Do you think work of art? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to have a song in between, or just just straight Abs in? Absolutely, we want to have a song in between. We gotta cleanse the palate. Um, <laughs> any suggestions? Wow. Um, Depends who's going next. Well, you gonna do your two, Greg, or? Because if you have two let's, left, then... let's have Greg do one, and then yeah. George can do one, and then if we have time for Greg, number two. So, all right. Well, actually, Paul, you play a song, um, play a song. that's gonna that's gonna kind of round off the the story we've just heard. Uh, okay. This this is the best one that I've queued up in terms of um, closing off conversation with my father. Um, we got No More Songs by Phil Ox. I've never known how to pronounce his last name, but Phil O-C-H-S. Once I knew a girl, she was 
Well, we had all these children out planting trees, see, because we figured that that was part of their education to see how, you know, the root systems and also the sense of responsibility, taking care of things, being individually responsible. You know what I mean? And the trees all died. They were orange trees. I don't know why they died. They just died. 
something wrong with the soil possibly or maybe the stuff we got from the nursery wasn't the best we complained about it so we've got 30 kids there each had his or her own little tree to plant and we've got these 30 dead trees all these kids looking at these little brown sticks it was depressing it wouldn't have been so bad except that just a couple of weeks before the thing with the trees the snakes all died i think that the snakes well the reason that the snakes kicked off was that you remember the boiler was shut off for four days because of the strike and that was explicable it was something you could explain to the kids because of the strike i mean none of their parents would let them cross the picket line and they knew there was a strike going on and what it meant so when things got started up again and we found the snakes they weren't too disturbed but the herb gardens <laughs> probably a case of overwatering and at least now they know not to overwater. <laughs> the children were very conscientious with the herb gardens and some of them probably, you know, slipped them a little extra water when they weren't looking. Or maybe, well, I don't like to think about sabotage, although it did occur to us. I mean, it was something that crossed our minds. We were thinking that way, but probably because before that, the gerbils had died and the white mice had died and the salamander. Well, now they know not to carry them around in plastic bags. Of course, we expected the tropical fish to die. That was no surprise. Those numbers, you look at them crooked and their belly up on the surface. But the lesson plan called for, for a tropical fish input at that point. There was nothing we could do. It happens every year. You just have to hurry past it. <laughs> we weren't even supposed to have a puppy. We weren't even supposed to have one. It was just a puppy the Murdoch girl found under a Gristeed's truck one day and she was afraid the truck would run over it when the driver had finished making his delivery so she stuck it in a knapsack and brought it to the school with her. So we had this puppy. As soon as I saw this puppy I thought, oh Christ, I bet it will live for about two weeks and then... And that's what it did. It wasn't supposed to be in the classroom at all. There's some kind of regulation about it, but you can't tell them that they can't have a puppy when the puppy is already there, right in front of them, running around on the floor and yap, yap, yapping. They named it Edgar. That is, they named it after me. <laughs> they had a lot of fun running around after it and yelling, here, Edgar, nice Edgar. Then they'd laugh like hell. They enjoyed the ambiguity. I enjoyed it myself. I don't mind being kidded. They made a little house for it in the supply closet and all that. I don't know what it died of. Distemper, I guess. It probably hadn't had any shots. I got it out of there before the school, the kids got to school. I checked the supply closet each morning routinely because I knew what was going to happen. I gave it to the custodian. And then there was this Korean orphan that the class adopted through the Help the Children program. All the kids brought in a quarter a month. That was the idea. It's an unfortunate thing. The kid's name was Kim and maybe we adopted him too late or something. The cause of death was not stated in the letter we got. They suggested we adopt another child instead and sent us some interesting case histories. We didn't have the heart. The class took it pretty hard. They began, I think, nobody ever said to me directly, to feel that maybe there was something wrong with the school. I don't think there's anything wrong with the school particularly. I've seen better, I've seen worse. It's just a run of bad luck. We had an extraordinary number of parents passing away, for instance. There were, I think, two heart attacks and two suicides, one drowning, 
and four killed together in a car accident. One stroke. We had the usual heavy mortality rate among the grandparents. Or maybe it was heavier this year. It seemed so. And finally, the tragedy. The tragedy occurred when Matthew Wine and Tony Mavrogordo were playing over where they're excavating for the new federal office building. There are all these big wooden beams stacked, you know, at the edge of the excavation. There's a court case coming out of that. The parents are claiming that the beams were poorly stacked. I don't know what's true and what's not. It's been a strange year. I forgot to mention Billy Brandt's father, who was knifed fatally when he grappled with a masked intruder in his home. One day, we had a discussion in class. They asked me, where did they go? The trees, the salamander, the tropical fish, Edgar, the poppers, the mamas, Matthew and Tony, where did they go? I said, I don't know, I don't know. And they said, who knows? And I said, nobody knows. And they said, is death that which gives meaning to life? And I said, no, life is that which gives meaning to life. Then they said, isn't death considered a, as a fundamental datum, the means by which the taken for granted mundanity of the everyday may be transcended in the direction? And I said, yes, maybe. And they said, we don't like it. I said, <laughs> that's sound. They said, it's a bloody shame. I said, it is. They said, will you now make love with Helen, our teaching <laughs> assistant, so that we can see how it's done? We know you like Helen. <laughs> I do like Helen, but I said that I would not. We've heard so much about it, they said, but we've never seen it. I said I would be fired and that it was never or almost never done as a demonstration. <laughs> Helen looked out the window. They said, please, please make love with Helen. We require an assertion of value. We are frightened. I said that they shouldn't be frightened, although I am often frightened and that there was value everywhere. Helen came and embraced me. I kissed her a few times on the brow. We held each other. The children were excited. Then there was a knock on the door. I opened the door and the new gerbil walked in. The children cheered wildly. <laughs> Man, beautiful. <sighs> That's such a good story. I want to say thank you. Thank you, Paul. It was a good, it was a good performance of it as well, for sure. It's fun to read that. Yeah, yeah. It's fun to read out loud. Everybody start reading your books out loud. Yeah. So I I really appreciate that story for some reason. I, I don't have any, you know, clever to say about it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I well, don't you know, know. You, were, you were bringing up George Saunders earlier. He's got a great little, like, explication of the story. It's like, it's almost like a sentence yeah. by sentence close reading of it. Really? Oh, cool. What does he say? I forget. <laughs> he says I it's like really it's, good. It's about something, you know, and I was thinking like, I was trying to connect it. Like, is it like American imperialism? Like, is it just like destroying the planet? And hmm. relationship with nature? Like, you know, the guy's yeah. name is Edgar. Is that like the FBI? Like Edgar Hoover? <laughs> or, or maybe like the federal office was mentioned at one point. I was trying to like, yeah, make these connections. Mm. Man, you're getting uh, deep into it. <laughs> uh. I think it's just about what it says it's about, George. <laughs> what what yeah. is on the tin? It does what it says on the tin. Yeah, I mean, what happens in this story, you know, what happens? We are presented with a school where a lot of people, a lot of things are slowly dying. And gradually it kind of it escalates from this thing that's kind of funny 
well it's sad but it's it's a bit funny it's like okay yeah. and then it almost without us realizing you know that there's suddenly a korean orphan and and we're like korean war 1953 <laughs> <laughs> and we're we've got to sort of like somehow integrate that sort of much more real tragedy into the jokey tragedy but it yeah. still feels like it's a big joke yeah. Um, and then yeah and then they're like a fantastic love affair between Helen and the, and the teacher yeah. yeah where did that come from like, it's like childhood innocence just like wanting to know things as well well it's yeah. it's not innocent I think they're like kind of desperate like there's that I guess like the first part of this of the story the most of it is like that sort of crescendo of like the death getting closer and closer to the classroom itself and like the children themselves until I guess two of them do die. And then they like panic and there's that like like quasi philosophical thing where they're like, what is going on? Where like the terror finally hits them, where it like cuts through the comedy. And that's where the, the Helen part comes in, right? That's like their mm. answer kind of, mm. I think, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's their, their consolation. But then also where does the gerbil come from, you know? <laughs> the yeah. gerbil walking in what at the end, just, just as they, no, yeah, Gerbil, yeah, yeah, Gerbil walks in just as the just as Helen and the teacher embrace. It walks in on its own. It, yeah. I guess it's implied. It, it <laughs> knocks on the door as well. Or... <laughs> it like thuds against the like door. A massive <laughs> Gerbil is what I'm imagining. Like a five foot tall Gerbil. Oh, um, the and then the kids, I assume, gerbil. are just distracted. Yeah. And that's it, you know? I think that. Like propaganda. Yeah. I don't know. I, I interpreted that as. Um, Bartholomew, how do you say his name? Bartholomew? Bartholomew. Bartholomew. Like sort of just like knocking down the whole story. Like it's like this like kind of house of cards uh, that he's like built up very carefully and like, you know, constructed very well. And then at the end, he's like, nah, just a gerbil walks in the door and just sort of like destroys the whole thing. He's like sort of says it is like, it starts off as a joke and then it gets serious. And then at the end he's like, no, this is all a joke. Oh, this is a joke. Yeah, stop taking this so seriously. Yeah. But, th- but at the same time, I do, you know, the gerbil isn't something, to- it doesn't feel totally like mundane. No, it doesn't, fe- it doesn't feel like this moment, this annoying moment at the end of the story where, you know, the author says something like, and then they woke up or, <laughs> it doesn't f- yeah, it doesn't feel yeah. like this sort of random thing. Um, There's a kind of like weird meaning to the new gerbil walking in. It's like, the circle of life somehow yeah well it's like the cycle is just going to continue like what do you think is going to happen to this gerbil based on what's been happening to all the other things you know Um, well maybe 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 something else maybe something else and even if not some maybe something else because helen and and the teacher have finally gotten together well even if not something else then at least they've gotten together you know they have they gotten together i feel like it was yeah 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 i don't know they embraced, but was it? I felt like it was a stiff embrace. It doesn't really say, does it? Um, oh, that's true. And, and he kissed her a few times on the brow. Yeah, they, yeah. they held yeah. each other. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter whether they're doing your sort of understanding of a heteronormative relationship. They're they're comforting each other. Well, we don't even know. We don't know how Helen feels about this. You know, is it supposed? Is she supposed to be attracted to the teacher as well? Well, this, I mean, this is the great the greatness of that that single line 
yeah. Helen looked out the window. Yeah. yeah. Scholars yeah. have been have been poring over that line for ages now. Helen looked out the window. Yeah. Did she look out the window because she was trying to act uninterested? Or she was blushing and she didn't want the kids to see. Yeah. yeah. Or she was uncomfortable and felt forced <laughs> into it, but felt that she had to show these kids some source of value because of oh all the tragedy that had happened in their lives. She's looking out the window, mm. wishing she could run through it. Yeah. Oh my God. Well. I love like the kind of blase way that he talks about like bureaucracy or like rules, health and safety. He's just like, yeah, you know, some stack of wood or whatever, you know, there was some court case about it. <laughs> just yeah. like this contempt for like that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. And I guess, I guess the nice thing about Bartholme and maybe the same can be said of Grace Bailey. I mean, it's the thing that is like, you know, everyone wants to be able to do. It's like be, being able to write in this way that just makes it seem like so um, unraw over, do you know what I mean? Like it just happened spontaneously, like it just popped out. And there's something really nice about Bartholomew's style. It kind of makes you feel like you could do it too, you know what I mean? It makes me <laughs> want to go and just like write some stuff. Yeah. Um, especially at the beginning, how kind of colloquial it is, um, the kind of repetition. Yeah, that's the thing I, I wanted to make. I, I think I said this about Grace Paley, that she had a good sense of like spoken language, but I think Bartholomew is like absolutely the master. Like you feel like you know so much about this teacher, even though he doesn't say anything about himself, you know, there's this like, like very complex sort of sense of like resignation and like defeat, but and like, I don't know, like fear um, that you see just in like the way he uses the language, you know? Um, yeah, totally. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's really nice. Yeah, yeah. Resignation, fear, and care. We weren't even supposed to have a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I want to I play that one out with yeah. the song My Old School by Steely Dan. It was um, the only song I could think of about school. <laughs> what about Schools Out for Summer by Alice uh, Cooper? The musical. Classic school song. Yeah. Okay, really look, I picked the one I'm gonna pick. Are you gonna play the song or not? Um yeah, we're gonna we're gonna pause. We're gonna keep thinking about songs that have school in them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um we're gonna pause um ten seconds for station identification. And then we're gonna listen to My Old School by Steely Dan. WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. Yeah. 
35 sweet goodbyes. When they put me on the Wolverine up to Annandale. Oh. It was still September when your daddy was quiet. <laughs>
Association of WCB and lovers. Yeah, it makes the heart pound faster. All right, now, if you'll all turn to page four in the manual, we will sing the club song. All right, turn to page four. That's it. All right, now, everybody ready? Here we go. I'll begin. You can join in later. Here we go. Ah, what is that? We love what sound are we extra fond of? It's not any trouble, you know it's double you see me in when you hear WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Wow, I love Steely Dan. It never gets old. <laughs> I right, never so we're jumping into the next one. I think we are, yeah. So that means it's me. I think and it I've does. I've chosen a short story called The Elephant by a chap called Slamo Wit. Are you trying Slamo to sound more Australian right now? <laughs> oh, no, I might. I mean, I could do it if you want. <laughs> I'll read a, a Polish short story in an Australian accent. How about that? <laughs> so yeah, it's translated from Polish. Um, yeah, here it is. The director at the zoological gardens had shown himself to be an upstart. He regarded his animals simply as stepping stones on the road to his own career. The road of his own career. He was indifferent to the educational importance of his establishment. In his zoo, the giraffe had a short neck, the badger had no burrow, and the whistlers, having lost all interest, whistled rarely and with some reluctance. These shortcomings should not have been allowed, especially as the zoo was often visited by parties of schoolchildren. The zoo was in a provincial town, and it was short of some of the most important animals, among them, the elephant. 3,000 rabbits were a poor substitute for the noble giant. However, as our, as our country developed, the gaps were being filled in a well-planned manner. On the occasion of the anniversary of the liberation on the 22nd of July, the zoo was notified that it had at long last been allocated an elephant. All the staff who were devoted to their work rejoiced at this news. All the greater was their surprise when they learned that the director had sent a letter to Warsaw, renouncing the allocation and putting, renouncing the allocation and putting forward a plan for obtaining an elephant by more economic means. You just turn it down a little bit, Paul? Yeah, sure, sure. Cheers. I and all the staff, he had written, are fully aware of how heavy a burden falls upon the shoulders of Polish miners and foundry men because of the elephant. Desirous of reducing our costs, I suggest that the elephant mentioned in your communication should be replaced by one of our own procurement. We can make an elephant out of rubber, of the correct size, fill it with air, and place it behind railings. It will be carefully painted, the correct color, and even on close inspection, will be indistinguishable from the real animal. It is well known that the elephant is a sluggish animal, and it does not run and jump about. 
In the notice on the railings, we can state that this particular elephant is particularly sluggish. The money saved in this way can be turned to purchase a jet plane or the conservation of some church monument. Kindly note that both the idea and its execution are my modest contribution to the common task and struggle. I am ETC, etc. This communication must have reached a soulless official who regarded his duties in a purely bureaucratic manner and did not examine the heart of the matter, but following only the directive about the reduction of expenditure, accepted the director's plan. On hearing the ministry's approval, the director issued instructions for, making, for the making of the rubber elephant. The carcass was to have been filled with air by two keepers blowing into it from opposite ends. To keep the operation secret, the work was to be completed during the night because people of the town, having heard that an elephant was joining the zoo, were anxious to see it. The director insisted on haste, also because he expected a bonus should his idea turn out to be a success. The two keepers locked themselves in a shed, normally housing a workshop, and began to blow. After two hours of hard blowing, they discovered that the rubber skin had risen only a few inches above the floor, and its bulge in no way resembled an elephant. The night progressed. Outside, human voices were stilled, and only the cry of the jackass interrupted the silence. Exhausted, the keepers stopped blowing and made sure that the air already inside the elephant should not escape. They were not young and were unaccustomed to this kind of work. If we go on at this rate, said one of them, we shan't be finished by morning. And what I am to tell my missus, she'll never believe me if I say that I spent the whole night blowing up an elephant. <laughs> Quite right, agreed the second keeper. Blowing up an elephant is not an everyday job. It's, it's all because of a director's a leftist. <laughs> they resumed their blowing, but after another half an hour, they felt too tired to continue. The bulge on the floor was larger, but still nothing like the shape of an elephant. It's getting harder all the time, said the first keeper. It's an uphill job, all right, agreed the second. Let's have a little rest. While they were resting, one of them noticed a gas pipe ending in a valve. Could they not fill the elephant with gas, he suggested to his mate. They decided to try. They connected the elephant to the gas pipe, turned the valve, and to their joy, in a few minutes they were f uh, there, there was a full-sized beast standing in the shed. It looked real, the enormous body, legs like columns, huge ears, and the inevitable trunk. Driven by, the, driven by ambition, the director had made sure of having in his zoo a very large elephant indeed. First class, declared the keeper, who had the idea of using gas. Now we can go home. In the morning, the elephant was moved to a special run in a central position next to the monkey cage. Placed in front of a large real rock, it looked fierce and magnificent. A big notice proclaimed, particularly sluggish, hardly moves. <laughs> Among the first visitors that morning was a party of children from a, the local school. The teacher in charge of them was planning to give them an object lesson about the elephant. 
He halted the group in front of the animal and began. The elephant is a herbivorous mammal. By means of its trunk, it pulls out young trees and eats their leaves. The children were looking at the elephant with enraptured admiration. They were waiting for it to pull out a young tree, but the beast stood still behind its railings. The elephant is a direct descendant of the now extinct mammoth. It's not surprising, therefore, it's the largest living land animal. The more conscientious pupils were making notes. Only the whale is heavier than the elephant, but then the whale lives in the sea. We can safely say that on land, the elephant reigns supreme. A slight breeze moved the branches of the trees in the zoo. The weight of a fully grown elephant is between nine and 13,000 pounds. At that moment, the elephant shuddered and rose into the air. For a few seconds, it stayed just above the ground, but a gust of wind blew it upward until its mighty silhouette was against the sky. For a short while, people on the ground could see the four circles of its feet, its bulging belly and the trunk, but soon propelled by the wind, the elephant sailed above the fence and disappeared over the treetops. Astonished monkeys in the cage continued staring into the sky. They found the elephant in the neighboring botanical gardens. It had landed on a cactus and punctured its rubber hide. The school children who had witnessed the scene in the zoo soon, soon, soon started neglecting their studies and turned into hooligans. It is reported that they drank liquor and it is reported that they drink liquor and break windows and they no longer believe in elephants. And that is the end. Nice. Wait, what was the name and author of the story? I'm not sure if you said it. The name the is the, the Elephant, and it's by Slamowir Morozhek. Okay, nice. It's pretty, I, I love that um, at the end, just the moment when the elephant rises up into the air, like, even though you know, like, what's going on. I just love that image of an elephant slowly like flying off the ground. Yeah, same. I love it. It's like the teacher is there like explaining about like the, the great elephant and how heavy it is. And then you just yeah. see like this bit of wind and then it's like, it just lifts up behind like, yeah. yeah. So funny to imagine that scene. Yeah. I was half expecting the teacher to like try and carry on. Just ex yeah. explaining why in this instance the elephant wasn't, wasn't on the ground. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was quite a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed it when I first read it. I feel like it's it's similar to the school a bit, right? In that figure of the teacher that's just like supposed to be teaching children how the world works, being just like totally undercut and contradicted. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the poor tragic teacher. This is this one reminds me, I guess, of of our conversation last time about kind of bureaucracy. I think it's a great allegory about bureaucracy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. Yeah, it was written in 1958 in Poland, so it would have been censored, and you could have been, I guess, yeah, killed for publishing it. Um, or it would have, yeah, at least been censored, so yeah, it's a way of obviously criticizing the regime through the allegory. 
I think what what makes it like a good story and one that's like worth reading now, like half a century later, though, is that it, like that's definitely there. It's like a nice, like funny satire of like an authoritarian government um, and like one that's like run by like an absolute faith in bureaucracy. But it's also like I think there's there's more to it than just that. You know, it's just, it's not only political satire. Um, and what I was, I don't know, what I was thinking about when, when you were reading it was like um, the way that it's about like nature as well, like our relationship to nature. Um, and that's kind of like, because that's like what the, the bureaucracy is, is doing is they've decided that like, oh, we don't even like, we don't even need real animals in the zoo. Like we can fake all of it. You know, we can have like a totally like human determined society um and i don't know what i think is like redeeming about this story is that um it it's i don't know um it's i don't know it, it's a satire not just of like like authoritarianism but of like an idea under like any political system that we could be like separate from nature that we could be like that we could like have a complete life with just like rubber replicas of elephants rather than an actual like lived relationship with the natural <laughs> world like the world outside the human yeah that's, that's when you when you put it like that it makes it sort of all the more significant that it was wind that that picks it up at the end and then yeah. blows it onto a cactus which like <laughs> yeah punctures it makes it in the botanical more, gardens uh, as well yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> makes it much more like nature's revenge <laughs> Yeah, definitely. I, I, I hadn't looked at it in that way, but that's definitely an interesting like angle thinking about it. I, I kind of would think about it in terms of like, yeah, the political satire, like even of today, of like our government, and it's just failings on coronavirus, but it's like telling us to buy into this idea. And it kind of connects into the other episode with David Graeber too, like these particular jobs or this particular way of like living in society, um, working to earn money to buy things and like there's always like the the criticism of like oh but if you don't do that then you'll just turn into like a hooligan or you'll be a dropout and like that's kind of what yeah. the communist state was also saying or like or organized religion saying you know if you don't do this then you're going to turn into that um, mm-hmm. i feel like yeah you can definitely apply it to so many different contexts i've i've read the thing about hooligans and dropouts at the end a bit differently like I guess I don't know that's like what's nice about this story is you can read it you can take it in a bunch of different ways that all sort of work um but I, w- I saw that not as like a sort of like scolding sort of thing but as like the culmination like that's what like really matters is like like whatever like fine the elephant thing didn't work but then what really makes it tragic um is the fact that it like I guess it destroyed these children's faith in like elephants and I guess like what I, like I was saying before elephant means like the natural world like the faith the the possibility of like I don't know a life that's like more in tune with the earth that's like separate from human institutions you know like being in touch yeah. with yourself even and then like they see this elephant pop and they're like oh there's there's no such thing as an elephant like all yeah. we have is this like uh, I don't know like run down Polish town like that's the limit of the world and that's why they turned to hooliganism 
Yeah. Yeah, it's both. It's like they are they don't have any trust in in the kind of system. They don't have any trust in the people around them. That's why they drink and they they break things. And yeah, and then they also don't have any faith in the natural world. That makes it kind of like a double blow at the end, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, like the extinguishing of their imaginations as well. Oh my god. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. And that's like Jeez. I, I think that that's unintentionally, I think we didn't plan this, but like that is the theme of all of our stories is the way that like humor hides within it tragedy and the other way around. Like cause this is a funny story for like in, until the last paragraph, I feel like it's like quite lighthearted, you know, and joking, but then at the very end, he's like, no, like, instead of like the gerbil walking into the room and redeeming everything, I don't know, it, the other, the other thing happens, the gerbil walks out of the room, I don't know, and um, the children have their hopes like destroyed, you know, mm. um, maybe it's the opposite of the school, they cancel each other out. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you read both of them, you might as well have read nothing. Yeah. Wasted <laughs> the last hour. No, thanks for sticking with us. This is Escape from Noise. You're yeah, nice. broadcasting live from WCPN. Ann Arbor. Yeah, Ann Arbor. It's WCBN FM. Somehow, oh, okay. for some reason, you got to say WCBN FM. I was worried you were going to say the wrong letters, though. I didn't, the, right? Yeah. You, yeah, you said I'm right, but if you did, um, <laughs> the station would be immediately uh, taken off the air. Oh, is that how it works? Also, um, Radio Dreyekland. You... No, this one's only this one's only WCBN. Ah, so, no, where's yeah. my German crew? Ah, they're out there. They're just. We got to do that another time for the German crew. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, German short stories. Oh man, you you would have to take the lead on that one, George. That'd be fun. Maybe we should try it. <laughs> I choose a song. Yeah, yeah. talk more about it's, the elephant. I think let's let's take a moment to collect our thoughts, maybe with a yeah. little musical break. What do you got? Yeah, I think it's got to be the one that I chose before, more than this, because I've been listening to it the last couple of days. Okay, nice. I don't think it necessarily goes with the elephant, but that's alright. It goes with uh, my morning routine these days. We got no rules here on the late night radio station that, i guess we can say you know the kids they they looked up at the elephant as they wanted away yeah. and they wanted more than this you know? yeah but then they couldn't have it they're more than this there's got to be more than this <laughs> all right let's take a listen
Welcome back. Uh, we've just heard three short stories. Um, thought a little bit about them. Maybe we've learned something new along the way. You're listening, by the way, to WCBN-FM. You knew that already. Um, maybe you didn't know the show is Escape from Noise. This is our new time slot. Um, late, late in the night. Um, our special guests, Greg and George, have to uh, get going rather soon. So just wanted to ask, um, guys, do you have any uh, closing thoughts um, for the show? Anything you haven't brought up um, yet? I've got a more specific question that also, if you need one. But what are you going to say, Greg? Yeah, I've got a whole story I wanted to read. <laughs> okay, can you do it in 10 minutes? How long is it? Yeah, he can do it. He can do it. I can do You're it. A speed talker? It's a short one. A short, okay. short story. Ready? I'm ready. If you tell the music down ever so slightly? Yes, of course. So this is a short story by um, Haruki Murakami, and um, it's from uh, a collection of short stories, which nicely segues from the last one we had, which is called The Elephant Vanishes. It's the collection. And it, the, this one specifically is titled On Seeing the 100% Perfect Girl One Beautiful April Morning. Here we go. One beautiful April morning on a narrow street in Tokyo's fashionable Harajuku neighborhood, I walked past the 100% perfect girl. Tell you the truth, she's not that good looking. She doesn't stand out in any way. Her clothes are nothing special. The back of her hair is still bent out of shape from sleep. She isn't young either, must be near 30. Not even close to a girl, properly speaking. But still, I know from 50 yards away, she's the 100% perfect girl for me. The moment I see her, there's a rumbling in my chest and my mouth is as dry as a desert. Maybe you have your own particular favorite type of girl. One with slim ankles, say, or big eyes or graceful fingers. Or you've drawn for no good reasons to girls to take their time with every meal. I have my own preferences, of course. Sometimes in a restaurant, I'll catch myself staring at the girl at the next table to mine because I like the shape of her nose. But no one can insist that his 100% perfect girl correspond to some preconceived type. Much as I like noses, I can't recall the shape of hers, or even if she had one. All I can remember for sure is that she was no great beauty. It's weird. Yesterday on the street, I passed a 100% per- 100% girl, I tell someone. Yeah, he says. Good looking? Not really. Your favorite type then? I don't know, I can't seem to remember anything about her. The shape of her eyes, the size of her breasts. Strange. Yeah, strange. But anyhow, he says, already bored. What did you do? Talk to her? Follow her? Nah, just passed her on the street. He's walking east to west, and I west to east. It's a really nice April morning. Wish I could talk to her. Half an hour would be plenty. Just ask her about herself, tell her about myself and what I'd really like to do. Explain to her the complexities of fate that have led to our passing each other on a side street in Harajuku on a beautiful April morning in 1981. This was something sure to be crammed full of warm secrets, like an antique clock. But when peace filled the world, 
After talking, we'd have lunch somewhere, maybe see a Woody Allen movie, stop by a hotel bar for cocktails. With any kind of luck, we might end up in bed. Potentiality knocks on the door of my heart. Now the distance between us has narrowed to 15 yards. How can I approach her? What should I say? Good morning, miss. Do you think you could spare half an hour for a little conversation? Ridiculous. I'd sound like an insurance salesman. Pardon me, but would you happen to know if there's an all-night cleaners in the neighborhood? No. This is just as ridiculous. I'm not carrying any laundry, for one thing. Who's going to buy a line like that? Maybe the simple truth would do. Good morning. You are the 100% perfect girl for me. No, she wouldn't believe it. Or even if she did, she might not want to talk to me. Sorry, she should say. I might be the 100% perfect girl for you, but you're not the 100% boy for me. It could happen. And if I found myself in that situation, I'd probably go to pieces. I'd never recover from the shock. I'm 32, and that's what growing older is all about. We pass in front of a flower shop. A small warm air touches my skin. The asphalt is damp, and I catch the scent of roses. I can't bring myself to speak to her. She wears a white sweater, and in her right hand, she holds a crisp, crisp white envelope, lacking only a stamp. So, she's written somebody a letter. Maybe spent the whole night writing, to judge from the sleepy look in her eyes. The envelope could contain every secret she's ever had. I take a few more strides and turn. She's lost in the crowd. Now, of course, I know exactly what I should have said to her. It would have been a long speech, though. Far too long for me to have delivered it properly. The ideas I come up with are never very practical. Oh well, it would have started once upon a time and ended a sad story, don't you think? Once upon a time there lived a boy and a girl. The boy was 18 and the girl 16. He was not unusually handsome and she was not especially beautiful. They were just an ordinary lonely boy and an ordinary lonely girl like all the others. They believed with their whole hearts that somewhere in the world there lived the 100% perfect boy and the 100% perfect girl for them. Yes, they believed in a miracle and that miracle actually happened. One day, the two came upon each other on the corner of the street. This is amazing, he said. I've been looking for you all my life. You may not believe this, but you're the 100% perfect girl for me. And you, she said to him, are the 100% perfect boy for me. Exactly as I'd pictured you in every detail. It's like a dream. They sat on a park bench, held hands and told each other their stories hour after hour. They were not lonely anymore. They'd found and been found by their 100% perfect other. What a wonderful thing it is to find and be found by your 100% perfect other. It's a miracle, a cosmic miracle. As they sat and talked, however, tiny, tiny sliver of doubt to root in their hearts. Was it really all right for one's dreams to come true so easily? And so when there came a momentary lull in their conversation, boy said to the girl, let's test ourselves just once. We really are each other's 100% perfect lovers and sometime, somewhere we will meet again without fail. And when that happens and we know that we are the 100% perfect ones, we'll marry then and there. What do you think? Yes, she said, that's exactly what we should do. And so they parted, she to the east and he to the west. The test they had agreed upon, however, was utterly unnecessary. They should never have undertaken it because they really and truly were each other's 100% perfect lovers and it was a miracle that they had ever met. But it was impossible for them to know this, young as they were. 
cold, indifferent waves of fate proceeded to toss them unmercifully. One winter, both the boy and the girl came down with the season's terrible influenza, and after drifting for weeks between life and death, they lost all memory of their early years. When they awoke, their piggy, excuse me, when they awoke, their heads were as empty as the young D.H. Lawrence's piggy bank. They were two bright, determined young people, however, and through their unremitting efforts, they were able to acquire once again the knowledge and feeling that qualified them to return as full-fledged members of society. Heaven be praised, they became truly upstanding citizens who knew how to transfer from one subway line to another, who were capable of sending a special delivery letter at the post office. Indeed, they even experienced love again, sometimes as much as 75% or even 85% love. Time passed with shocking swiftness, and soon the boy was 32 and the girl 30. One beautiful April morning, in search of a cup of coffee to start the day, the boy was walking from west to east while a girl intended to send a special delivery letter as we from east to west. They passed each other in the very centre of the street. The faintest gleam of their lost memories glimmered for the briefest moment in their hearts. Each felt a rumbling in the chest, and they knew she is the 100% perfect girl for me. He is the 100% perfect boy for me. The glow of their memories was far too weak and their thoughts no longer had the clarity of 14 years earlier. That word they passed each other, disappearing into the ground forever. A sad story, don't you think? Yes, that's it. That is what I should have said to her. Beautiful. Are you worried about paying rent? At risk of being evicted? Concerned about renewing your lease or does your landlord refuse to make repairs? We all deserve to be treated with dignity and respect by our landlords. Whether you're looking for advice on issues with your landlord or property manager, or ready to start organizing with your neighbors, the Tenants Union is here to help all renters in Washtenaw County. Tenants together are stronger. Want to know how the Tenants Union can help you? Email us at aatenantunion at gmail.com, find us on Facebook at Ann Arbor Tenants Union, or leave a voicemail at 440-482-1968. That's 440-482-1968. I never read anything by Murakami. Actually, I read like the first paragraph of one of his books once, and I was like, "This isn't, this isn't what I want right now." That's not for you. <laughs> I read the, no, I read Norwegian Wood this this summer or last summer, and yeah, I enjoyed it. It's definitely like similar in his like, I guess, fawning over like women that he sees <laughs> in the streets. <laughs> yeah, it's very yeah. So yeah. Reading it now, I was like, oh God, this is so this is so nostalgic and woozy. These boys are gonna hate this. These boys wanted something, these boys wanted Chekhov. They wanted something hard. I don't know. I, I tragedy. No, no, it's not that. It's just that like he's he's a bit too caught up in himself, you know? I feel like all the other all the other stories were about like dealing with the like gap between your like fantasy and like the actual world, you know, and like trying to figure that out. And he was just like, No, I wanna I want to just have a little fairy tale fantasy. Like, that's all I want. 
Ah, that's what stories are, man. You're you modernist. <laughs> no, that's that's surrendering. Serious. That's you gotta you've gotta fight the difficult fight. You gotta stay right on that line, you know. Anyways. No, no, no. You have to construct. You have to construct a better, better reality with your with your imagination. Yeah, and the way to do that, it, you can't just go in, into like a little fantasy about how you're actually a hundred percent perfect for this other person. You know, mm. come on, who's gonna believe something like that? Uh, not me. Not me. It's like a kind of common thing though to do. You know, like it felt familiar. You know, that that kind of thinking, like crossing someone in the street and then being like, oh my gosh, you know. Yeah, like love at love at last sight kind of thing, <laughs> as Walter Benjamin would say. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Thank you, George, for your backup there. I think you're right. I think there is something relatable about it. Uh, uh, and I, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's something about the like. Um, well, I don't know. Maybe it is just shit. No, I don't mean. I don't know. I think you can learn some as 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 um, the great poet Ben Lerner once said. You can learn a lot <laughs> even from um, a bad piece of of writing. You know, not that I'm saying this is. I'm not saying this is bad. You know, I'm just, I I think I. Oh, you I think don't you could do it better? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe I do. Maybe I do think I could do better. Oh um, my god! But in my own is in my own chosen everybody. medium, which is yeah. late night. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, uh, yeah. oh, so, you can't win them all greg no that's we got one out of i two think you won the night with the school though i think oh, i think yeah, that nice. was an inspired choice yeah <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to what do you want to hear from us before we leave paul um well what i was gonna ask um if you got time um do you, do you feel like, because the whole point of the show, Escape from Noise, is about we're trying to figure out a way for um, art to like cross over that border between art and life, you know? We're trying to, we're trying to make a couple holes in the fences. Do you think that what we've done tonight um, will, you know, change you in any way? You're going to wake up tomorrow. Is anything going to be different after having read these stories or, or not? I guess we don't have too much time to get into it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel actually like, yes, like I, I really enjoyed reading the stories out loud. And I think it's like a fun thing to do. Like I can really imagine myself like understanding up or sitting in front of people uh, and wanting to you know, be sat in front of people doing it as well. And yeah, just playing with the dialogue as well, playing with like the words and acting them out almost like kind of performance. Um, yeah, so that kind of feels to me like bringing a bit of art into my everyday. Yeah. Nice. Thanks, George. I'm glad you said that because my first thought was no. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not. Uh, but you're right. It, it has been. Um, this is really nice to share stories, actually, and and to read them. It's sort of like bizarre that that's not more commonly done. Um, that we all like ingest sometimes fucking thousands of words privately and personally to ourselves. It's like, why don't we share these things with each other? Yeah. Mm. Um, um, what, I don't know what, what kind of sort of blurring of boundaries you're looking for exactly, Paul, but. I'm not looking for anything. I'm just like, I mean, that's what the show is about. Um, 
And also um, the whole thing is that we, we haven't really found one yet. You know, once we do, we can stop doing the show because we'll have the answer. So um, <laughs> you could end it all right now if, you're, if you've got something convincing to say, but um, usually I just end the two hours by throwing up my hands and being like, well, there's not much you can do with this now. Wait a minute, I could end the whole series right now? If, if only I had the right me. words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not the right oh. words, the right feelings as well, yeah. Oh, the right, the right intonation? The right in combination the words? Of, of words and feelings, yeah. Oh my goodness. And who decides? Oh. Are you the person? Me, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, the, I'm the, yeah. you're the adjudicator? I'm the, I'm the judge and jury. The oh, grand okay. judge. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I don't have any words okay. for you. I mean, uh, yeah. I don't want to end it, you know, I want to keep it going. Okay. I want to keep it to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny that I was thinking about just in terms of like storytelling though, and like when they happen or when a story is commonly told and, yeah. and it's either like to children or yeah. like on deathbeds, right? And our stories had yeah. both of those things. Um, oh, wow. So I would like to, yeah, try and just tell more stories, I guess. It's often like, I guess, dead time or- Find some more deathbeds. <laughs> yeah exactly uh well it's not a bad time there's not enough change. of them <laughs> there's not enough uh hospital beds in the uk though so <laughs> yeah. gotta find it from somewhere yeah um yeah i don't know yeah like it would be cool to try and do that but yeah we should just do this again and we could write our own stories as well write our own short Ooh. stories and give it give it a go maybe that'll be a way yeah. of answering paul's question well yeah i mean that was the thing that i was thinking you know if you really want to you know, bring art into our lives, then we have to start. We can't so just sort of, it. yeah, we can't rely yeah. on all these other people to do the art for us. Yeah. I think that's a start of something. And then I guess maybe like explore what, like you just did, George, what moments these stories might be kind of useful for us in a way in our lives. Mm. I think you do have to create space for it though. I think maybe like in, I think like protests or like, you know, occupations, that's a good time for stories or singing, you know, like those kind of moments. Um, and there's not really much of that happening at the moment. No, you're right. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think you're onto something um, with art being like a community thing instead of like, we. It's, I think it has become more and more individualistic over, I don't know, the years or decades or whatever. And I think that's, that's part of the reason that I picked the conversation story is because it's, it's Grace Paley trying to wrestle with art being a like direct means of communication between two people rather than someone like tossing something out into like the unknown and someone like yeah. finding it from the unknown. Um, no, you're right. I don't, it's a really good story for that. I don't have a total answer, but I think that that's got to be part of it, you know? Yeah. yeah. All right, should we call it a night? Thanks yeah. for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having uh, us thanks. again. Yeah, Paul. thanks for having us, Paul. Yeah. And it's, very, it's an honor to be invited here to uh, this space. Well, um, I don't know what to say to that. Um, all the <laughs> listeners, have a good night. Get some sleep, you know? Yeah, yeah. go to sleep. <laughs> Yeah. Gotta stay. Okay. Bye bye now.
You've changed. 
remember Nate. You changed me. You helped me to see a fuller picture of the person I could be. Riding a swell to a golden bell. Thought I was moving in a line, but it was actually a circle comprised of a smaller set of circles. Two eggs, two cups of flour, one and three quarter cups of milk, and a half cup of vegetable oil, one tablespoon of white sugar, four teaspoons of baking powder, a quarter teaspoon of salt, and a half
people expect listening to be more than listen. And so sometimes they speak of uh, inner listening um, or the meaning of sound. Uh, when I uh, talk about music, I gen it finally comes to people's minds that I'm talking about sound that doesn't mean anything, uh, that is not inner, but is just outer. And they say, they, these people who understand that finally say, you mean it's just sounds, thinking that to, for something to just be a sound is to be useless. Whereas I love sounds just as they are. And I have no need for them to be anything more than what they are. I don't want them to be psychological. I don't want a sound to pretend that it's a bucket or that it's a president or that it's in love with another sound. <laughs> I just want it to be a sound. You're listening to the fine sounds of WCBN FM Ann Arbor.